Now I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 1. Having just read the warning, the rebuke of the shepherds in Israel who were abusing those to whom they were to be giving care, we now hear God's commandments positively for those elders, for overseers of God's flock. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or, subord or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And thus concludes the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Let us now... Prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's word with prayer. Father, we now assemble ourselves to sit before the proclamation and teaching of your word. With fear and trembling, we hear your words. And we ask, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake and his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you, we have just read our passage for today is Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. And again, we can see that this is a passage well suited to the occasion of the ordination and installation of our new ruling elder, Bill Harding. As such, this is certainly a timely word for Bill. Um, it is a timely word for the session of this church. But it's also a timely word for all of us gathered here today for a couple of reasons. One, it's timely in that it helps us to know what to look for in biblical elders. Secondly, it helps us to know God's intentions for elders in the life of the church. And perhaps for some of you other men, it could even help you to discern God's calling in your own life. But regardless, uh, we can all learn devotionally from this, from what is required of elders, because what is required of them is ultimately spiritual maturity, which is what every Christian is to pursue. So by way of example, I, I recall whenever our oldest son was a little bit younger, not that he's old, but when he was a real tiny guy and we were new parents, um, we tried to take advantage every once in a while of somebody to watch our kids so that Hannah and I could go out and enjoy an evening together. But almost without fail, we would uh, get down the road a little ways or maybe half an hour, maybe an hour would go by and she'd say, well, I'm going to text him, just check in, or I'm going to give him a phone call just to check in on Henry, make sure everything was going well. And the reason she did that was not so much that she distrusted the person in charge, but rather because she cared for the one that was in their care. This was our child, whom we love 
very much. And beyond that, as a mother, she knew best what he needed. She was the one uh, who loved him, who cared for him, and who knew how to keep him safe. And she wanted to ensure that that was going on. And that sort of a mindset sort of conveys the idea behind Paul writing this letter to Titus. He cares both for Titus and for the church. He wants to see it do well. He's checking in on it. He wants to see it thrive and be obedient to the Lord. Why? Because he knows the Lord's word and plan is sufficient for his church and for his people. And so Paul wrote this most likely in the mid-60s A.D., uh, likely after Acts 28. Uh, Paul established churches in Crete. He moved on and he left Titus uh, to finish the work there. As we've said, he loves the church. He desires its good. And we even see this um, indicated in verse 1, where it says there that he is writing in part for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And so how this then comes to play out in our passage before us is that Paul, Paul indicates the need for elders. And by the way, we use the words elders overseers interchangeably in the scriptures because the scriptures do. So he indicates the need for those elders, but he also indicates how to identify them, that is their qualifications. And he tasks the one elder, that is Titus, with ensuring that these things are carried out, again, for the good of the church. And so this then is God's instruction to us this morning. And I want to begin our study of this with a quote to you uh, from a commentary by uh, Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell, which I think wonderfully uh, conveys the, the, the thrust of this passage. And they write that Paul cautions mature believers never to act as though they are only responsible for themselves. The knowledge that Christian maturity brings combined with the spiritual dangers that others face obligate Christian leaders to lead. Now how that applies from our passage this morning is that Paul is giving a very particular list of qualifications here that convey to us something about the duties and obligations of the office of an elder. They are ones who are to care for the church. And a large part of that comes from they themselves having been confronted with and changed by this gospel that they profess to believe. Because they are to themselves know the Lord that they proclaim, example that life before the flock, and lead others in that manner of life. And so what that means then is no mature Christian leader one especially who has been called to this formal office, he cannot say, well, I'm okay, I'm good, so I'm going to just you know, mind my own business and go down the road. No, if God has called a man to that, then he has an obligation to care for others because he himself knows the spiritual dangers that faces the Christian life. And he is called to help others through that. But what we see in... The qualifications and the instruction given here is that ultimately we're reminded of the power of the gospel. This is not a work that is undertaken in 
the power of man, but rather in the power of Christ, in the love of Christ, and in trusting and depending completely upon Him for His provision for His church. And so I just want to give you then a, a one-sentence summary statement for the three points we're going to cover from this text this morning that we see instructed to us. And that is this, that God's purpose for elders is to oversee the church as stewards of the gospel to promote and protect the ministry of it for the good of the church and the glory of Christ. I'll say that once more. God's purpose for elders is to oversee the church as stewards of the gospel to promote and protect the ministry of it for the good of the church and the glory of Christ. And so first and foremost, God's purpose for elders is to facilitate order in the church by exercising oversight. What's interesting here is we see that apparently a healthy church takes time. Now, most of us probably know that by experience, but even if not, we can see it conveyed to us here. Paul did not just set up a church and leave it and never worry about it again. It didn't become self-sustaining, self-sufficient right from the start. It needed continued care and guidance. And there's kind of two contrasting um, faults that we must be warned against here uh, at the opening of this passage. First and foremost, the church is not merely an organizational structure. Now, it may not be less than that, but what we mean is it's not like a rotary club where you can just get some people together, have a constitution, elect some officers, and bam, there it is. No, a church is first and foremost a group of saved sinners called to Christ. People with burdens, with problems, who have been redeemed by the gospel, but who are fighting the fight uh, of sanctification through this life with their eyes on Christ. And so while it might seem a unique warning, as Reformed believers, we are known for being very passionate, and rightly so, about good doctrine, about order, about um, righteous living, and so forth. But in our zeal to be biblical, we must not neglect the necessity but to be saved. Now, we would never do that intentionally. But what we're saying is, in our zeal for good order, for good structure, we cannot ignore the fact that that good order and good structure does not save souls. The gospel of Jesus Christ saves souls. But these are not opposed to one another. They go hand in hand. It is not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It is both and together, which leads us then to the contrast to that. The other side is to say that there is an importance to church structure. And clearly Paul is concerned with that. So that you might put what remained into order. In some sense, there is a general lack of order there in the church in Crete. And what this reminds us then is that as important and as essential as the gospel is, as conversions are to the church, conversions are not enough for faithfulness. In other words, evangelism alone does not create a healthy church. 
That is why Paul took time to set Timothy to this task and to encourage and command him to appoint others to share in this task of leading, of guiding, of shepherding, and caring for the church. In our present day, this is probably one of the more familiar errors. Started um, at this point, probably some 50 to 60 years ago. But this was, in some sense, a product of the Jesus movement of the 1970s. And certainly, I would say there are things we can learn from that. Absolutely good things we can learn from that movement. But one of the big errors of that movement was basically to say that order and structure in the church is not helpful, and so we're just going to do away with it. It's, it's all about just evangelism and, and making people comfortable and worship Jesus your way, that sort of thing. And we've seen many negative fruits of that movement into our present day. Because ultimately, if evangelism is the only thing, then evangelism without discipleship is a man-centered gospel. Because in the Great Commission, God didn't call us just to go and evangelize. No, rather, Christ commanded, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them obedience to his commands. What that tells us then is though the gospel is all grace to us, it is free grace which saves us by Christ alone, not by our works. Nevertheless, in the gospel, we are called to obedience. We are called to a new manner of life which Christ lays forth for us in these scriptures. So Paul's focus then is now to see the saved there in Crete thrive by God's design. And what an encouragement that is that God does not leave us to sink or swim. He doesn't say, all right, I saved you, now figure it out. No, he says, I've saved you, now hear my word continually and be fed by it. So as we've said, there was, in some sense, a general lack of order in the church in Crete. As we see later on in Titus, it may have been that there was some false teaching circulating in that church or around that area in some sense. And so there was an even more pressing need to address this issue right now. And so he tells Titus, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Just in passing, I would encourage you to note that the word elders there is plural, uh, equals overseers, as we see in verse 7. Those are plural, but it says in every town, singular. And so you have a plurality of elders that are called to be appointed in every town, singular. Uh, we see this principle of a plurality of elders in every church throughout the New Testament. But why? That's the big question. Why does the church need these elders? Well, in part, part of God's appointed order to defend the truth, to care for families, for individual believers, to exhort believers to faithful living and to protect the unity of the church around the gospel. Part of his plan and design for that is to set godly men, called men over those churches to exercise that care, 
you know, whenever, um, before I became a pastor, one of my first jobs out of college was working for uh, the University of Arkansas in, in cotton research. And it, it wasn't very uh, glorious as it, as it may sound. It was more being a farmhand for a cotton breeder. Uh, but nevertheless, paid the bills. Uh, but I was very green. Now, I like to think of myself as a fast learner, but I didn't have a lot of experience with equipment and all the things that it takes to um, manage land, to plant a crop, grow a crop, all of that. Most of my learning was theoretical at that point. Well, through a series of events, uh, I kind of got thrown to the wolves in that situation where I had to just jump in and pretty much by myself manage about 40 acres of ground, and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I was flying by the seat of my pants, just trying to do the best job that I could do every day. Now, fast forward, I moved on to another job later on. And in that job, it was uh, largely the opposite. In that job, I had a, a boss who was very knowledgeable and who labored to teach me everything I needed to know and showed me exactly how to do it, exactly what to think about, exactly things to take into consideration. And I, I felt a lot more confident and was able to carry out my job a lot better than I had previously. I give you that example because it's a practical demonstration of how if I would have had the leadership and guidance previously that I enjoyed later in my second job, I would have been able to do that first job a lot better. Now, that relates then to the appointment of elders because it goes to show you, again, how Christians are not called to figure this Christian life out on their own, right? But rather, God appoints men called to an office to care for them, to guide them, to lead them. And a large part of how that happens, as we're about to see, is by example. Now, before we move into that, I just want to briefly mention that, yes, it says here that Titus is to appoint the elders in every town. In our form of government, which we... Um, deduce from the scriptures that are right here before us at the church level when it comes to ruling elders. A nomination is made from the congregation. That nomination is received by the session, that is, by the elders who are currently in place. The session surveys that, gets with the individual, ensures that he becomes trained, receives the, the preparation that he needs. Uh, examines him so that they may certify that, yes, this man seems to bear the calling and the qualifications to this office. And then, as happened a couple of weeks ago, um, or last week rather, that man is put forth to the congregation where he is voted on by each individual. We do it that way because that is the implication we see from the scriptures, that uh, certainly a man should not be elected uh, simply uh, at the congregation's discretion, but rather those who have been called to that office take part in um, discerning his calling, caring for him, ensuring that he is prepared, but that ultimately the congregation does have a say in voting that man to that office. Why? Well, because a large part, again, in his qualifications is how he cares for his family, and how he conducts himself. Who knows that better than the people among whom he fellowships week in and week out? It's the God using his church 
toward that end. Now, to move on, as we've said, God's first purpose in elders is to facilitate order uh, by overseeing the church. Secondly, it is to steward the Gospels as examples to the flock. And, and this is the real central part of our passage in verses 6 through 8 here. They are to be men whose lives display the power of the Gospel. You see that he is to be, as it says in verse 6, above reproach. Other versions translate that word as blameless. But the idea is um, unable to be called out. That is, when a, an individual looks at his life and examines him and compares that to the Scriptures itself, that he is unable to be called out um, for, for not believing and seeking to obey those Scriptures. Now, does that call him to perfection or sinlessness? Absolutely not. We know from verse John that if anyone says he is without sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But rather what that communicates to us is that he is to be a man of godly character. That when you survey his life, not that you don't see um, imperfections, but rather that when you survey his life, you see a man who strives to live out his calling in the gospel. That is, he is one who demonstrates dependence daily upon Christ, a clinging to the ordinary means of grace, and an overall conviction that what he professes with his mouth, he seeks to live out by his manner of life. And in all of this, the measuring stick is the gospel. It's not man-made standards or what we think ought to be or feel ought to be, but it's rather what God's word says ought to be. Again, if you think of a car salesman, we've all bought vehicles, and so if you've ever been able to, to buy one new, but even used for that matter, if the car salesman comes up to you and says, this is the best model of vehicle for the type of thing you're wanting. It's, I, I couldn't recommend anything else better than what you have right here. Um, but then you ask him, okay, well, well, what do you drive? And he says, well, I don't drive this. I drive something else, different brand. You have to question a little bit, okay, how much does he really believe what he's saying? Now, in that example, there could be other factors, but the point is, by our manner of life, a man's life ought to demonstrate a true belief in what he communicates, what he professes to believe. Because how, after all, can a man lead others to follow Christ if his own life doesn't display fruit of walking with Christ? And so Paul gives us then two main categories to look at, to consider when looking at a man's qualification for the office. First and foremost, we're called to look at his household. This we may call the preliminary test in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. Now this is important because the first and most frequent setting where any person will live out their faith is not in the church, but in the home. That is where he spends the bulk of his time. That is also where you're going to see the fruit of the gospel uh, most commonly manifested. And so in verse 6, he is to be the husband of one wife. Now, literally translated, it means he is to be a one-woman man. 
Now, what that phrase is ultimately about is about commitment. It's about a man's heart. All right? Because how a man loves his wife is telling of his love for Christ. How a man leads his family is telling of how he will lead the church. Again, because the gospel is not merely a creed. Again, it's nothing less than that. But no, it is something to be believed in such a way that it results in outward results in our lives. And so there is no way to believe the gospel and not be affected in the home. There's no way to believe the gospel and not be affected in how we parent our children, how we love our families, and so on and so forth. Now, just by way of some, some exegetical concerns, you know, this is a verse along with 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, where it comes into the discussion, well, does this address divorce? Does this address past um, marital issues? That sort of thing. And certainly there's things we can learn from that. Certainly there is wisdom to be applied from this passage. But exegetically, the concern is that present commitment. Um, it doesn't even necessarily address uh, polygamy, as some might cons- uh, assume, and that's because at this time, in this setting, polygamy was not really an issue. Uh, men didn't typically have multiple wives at this juncture in history, especially in this New Testament setting. No, rather, what the concern was is how does that man commit himself to his wife? We note also that elders are to be men. They are to be husbands of one wife. Just as in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, the office of ruling elder is one of rule. It is one of carrying out spiritual authority. But this is an authority that is subservient to Christ. It comes only from Christ. It is that, therefore, a ministration of Christ's authority, not belonging to that man, but belonging to the Lord alone. He is God's servant, God's steward. But that brings us then to the question of his children. It says his children are believers. So then, does that require that an elder's children be true, professing, regenerate believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, again, here, I think the answer is not as simple as we may like it to be. I don't think it's a simple yes or no. As far as the Greek goes, it's the Greek word pistos. That word's used 69 times in the New Testament. 44 of those times, it's used not in the sense of believing or believer, but rather in the sense of faithful. And so the majority of the time, that word is used uh, in the sense of one who is to be faithful. Other translations translate it that way here, and in the context, that certainly would fit, but we still must answer the question, what does it mean that an elder or overseer, his children must be faithful? Well, what this is getting at is nothing other than God's call for an elder to fully embrace the reality of God's covenant in his family life. We often talk about God's covenant. We talk about having a covenantal worship service. We talk about having covenant children. Why? Because we ourselves have been made members of God's covenant, heirs of the covenant promise. 
And that certainly is not just lip service to what the Bible teaches, but it means something for us. It means something about how we conduct our lives. This reflects the same idea that's mentioned in Deuteronomy 6. There uh, in the same chapter of the Shema, right, where the God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He goes on to tell them, You shall teach them, that is your children, or you shall teach them, that is the words of the law, diligently to your children. God's promises to us have necessary consequences for our children. And so in the case of assessing one who is potentially called to be an elder, an overseer of God's flock, we can then look at how he parents his children. Because it's impossible that a man should believe the gospel and that not have a direct effect upon how he raises his children. Because ultimately, it truly is a matter of life and death. He is responsible for their spiritual welfare. Now, not to convert them, not to save them himself. That is the Lord's business. That is the Lord's work. Which is partly why I say it's not a simple yes or no answer because salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot guarantee the salvation of our children. Only the Lord can do that. But nevertheless, He has made promises to us and to our children. And so if a man embraces that, that's going to change how he raises those children. He's responsible for their spiritual welfare and the same is true for an elder in God's church. He has been given responsibility for the spiritual welfare for that flock, to share in that responsibility with his other brothers who have been called to share in that office with him. And so there's also then that expectation that that man's spiritual oversight and care for his children will bear fruit by God's grace alone. That's where the faithfulness comes in. Not that we look at them and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are regenerate believers. But rather, does that man raise his kids in such a way to disciple them diligently that they may know the truth about Christ, that they may be called to repentance in Christ, and that they may seek to be obedient to him through the gospel. This is a very high calling and I think in the church at large, a large number of elders disregard this key part of the calling and thereby disqualify themselves. That may sound harsh to say, but we so often look for excuses in this area because we know children can be unruly. We know children can be difficult and not necessarily by any fault of their own. It's just that we're all sinful human beings. We're not perfect as parents. They're not perfect as children. Difficulties do arise. But to quote Chaplain Hughes again, good leadership is not determined in the absence of difficulty, but in the prudent discipline and handling of problems when difficulties come. And so part of the discipline of an elder in regard to his family is, is he diligent? to lead them in family worship? Is he diligent to guide them in memorizing the truths of the Scriptures, to immerse themselves in the Scriptures? 
Is he diligent to teach them the covenant promises of God? Is he diligent to make them aware of their sin, that they may see Christ and flee to the mercy of Christ? None of this guarantees that they become believers, but it will necessarily have an effect in their lives. And when those problems do inevitably arise, how does he respond to them? Does he shirk back from his responsibilities and just let them go? Or look the other way? Or does he address them? Does he demonstrate that he believes the gospel, that he cares for the souls of those children? Because again, as we read in 1 Timothy, if a man cannot manage his household, how can he manage or care for the household of God? Because in the church, it's the same thing in some different ways, but it's largely the same thing. It's caring for the souls of individuals, pointing them to Christ, and leading them by example. And so for children and his children, their general disposition should be one of modesty, that is not debauchery. It should be one of respect, not insubordination. Which leads us then to look at the second thing regarding this man's uh, life, his qualification, that is to look at his conduct in verses, the second part of verse 7 into verse 8. We see there an overseer as God's steward must be, again, above reproach. That's repeated, emphasized. And he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. We have five negatives there. That is, five things that he must not be. But what all of this emphasizes is the necessity of good stewardship. Now, again, the Greek word there is interesting. If you just break it into its two parts, which is dangerous, you've got to be careful with doing that. But those two parts literally mean house law. But those two words came to be combined and to uh, be defined in this way uh, that it refers to one who is an administrator or a manager of a household, right? Or a steward, as the word is translated here. And it begins with the word, he must. That is, it is necessary. Reminded of the Scottish pastor, well-known of the 19th century, Robert Murray Machane. He famously once said, My people's greatest need, referring to the church, is my own personal holiness. Now that's an intentional overstatement. The people's greatest need is Christ, not his holiness. But nevertheless, what he was communicating was the seriousness with which, with which he took his example to the flock that he must not simply just preach the word, as important as that is, and disregard his living. But again, it's both and. It's the ministration of the word and the sacraments. It's also the living out of that word. Now, he's coming from a pastor's standpoint, but from a ruling elder standpoint, still yet, his duty is to help protect and promote the ministry of the word and the sacraments. That is to protect the gospel. And one of the ways in which he does that is by his example, as a living testimony of God's grace. And so these five negatives we see here, he is not, he's to be not arrogant. That is not primarily concerned with his own self-interest. We don't think of that as defining the word arrogant, but again, the original language there, the, the emphasis is that he shouldn't be self-serving. He shouldn't say, okay, what's best for me? like the shameful elders of Israel in Ezekiel 34 who were seeking to feed themselves and not the sheep. Rather, he is to think first of the sheep, 
be concerned about the interest of others. Secondly, he's not quick-tempered. One's fairly straightforward, but a quick temper demonstrates one who is not submitted to Christ. As it says in 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's, Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Patience is a fruit. God's work within us. Not a drunkard. It literally means he's not given to much wine. In other words, he must display a gospel sensibility. A, 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 an attitude, a disposition of moderation. Goes on to say he must not be violent. That is not prone to using force, right? Again, let's think of the elders of Israel. They're not to strong arm the sheep to get what they want or to abuse them or to see them as pawns for some selfish gain. No, he should not be violent. He should be kind, gentle, patient, depending upon the gospel. And that's the big thing there. Because again, to use the sheep analogy, I shared this with Elder Kent um, a few days ago, That a book that had an impact on me, especially early in my training uh, in seminary, was one called They Smell Like Sheep. And it was a book written about elders. And the idea is, there's a reason that the New Testament uses that imagery of shepherds and sheep. Right? A shepherd who never tends to his flock, never cares for them, never goes among them, never interacts with them, he's not going to smell like sheep. He might be like that cup, clean and shiny on the outside, but it certainly does not bode well for what's true of him on the inside. But rather, what shepherds or what elders are called to be are those who are among the sheep. That's why they are appointed and elected from among the sheep. It's because they're to care for them, be among them, suffer with them, deal with their difficulties, deal with their challenges. And it's not always going to be pretty. It's not always going to be easy. So this man must be patient. He must not try to use worldly means to resolve issues there, but rather he must depend upon Christ and the gospel alone. And finally, he must not be greedy for gain. Much the same can be said about this one. But his motivation, again, is Christ not selfish ambition. The text moves on from there and gives us six positives about this man, what he must be. He must be hospitable. Again, this is the opposite of self-serving. He shows the same kindness toward others that has been shown to himself. He must be a lover of good. That is, he delights in what God delights in, showing a regenerate heart. God's commands and desires are not burdensome to him, but they are a desire of his heart. He's self-controlled. That is, a steady man who can be depended upon. People don't look at him and say, well, maybe we can trust him. I'm not real sure, but rather no. We look at him and say, yes, that is a man who is steady. He's steadfast in Christ. Upright literally means just or righteous. That is, he's compelled to do what is right. Thus, whenever he is exercising that rule and governance of the church, what he is motivated by is that righteousness, is that desire to do what is right and holy in God's sight and what is good for God's people. And therefore, he is to be holy. Now, in this sense, this is not the word that's typically used for set apart, but rather the word that's used to mean pure. 
Okay, that is, he seeks to honor God in everything. He seeks to live a pure life. Again, not perfect, but rather to pursue holiness. And finally, he is to be disciplined. This indicates the sense of wisely keeping self-control over his passions, his desires. In short, Christian leaders embody discretion and care for others in the flock by modeling virtue that comes from grace through the gospel. Which leads then to the final and the kind of pinnacle point here. That is, God's purpose for elders is to promote and protect the ministry of the gospel. In verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He must be unwaveringly committed to the gospel. Which brings us full circle back to what we indicated at the beginning. The church is formed of a people who have been saved by grace and grace alone through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul holds it forth so importantly here as the trustworthy word as taught. It's because it's not merely beneficial, it is absolutely essential. For faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's why elsewhere Paul writes to the Galatians whenever they were tolerating a heresy that corrupted the gospel. He said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, that is accursed. Do not tolerate those who would corrupt the gospel. He uses this word, or this phrase rather, hold firm. I think of that in the sense of, have you ever seen those movies, where you know, the action movies where people are jumping out of airplanes and somebody's without a parachute and somebody else has one. There's this great fight going on. The one who doesn't have the parachute is trying to get one. And I think of if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, but there's somebody next to you or you get pushed out, you are going to try to cling to that person with your parachute. You are going to try to hold firmly as you can to it. Why? Because it's life. In the same sense, so an elder, an overseer, is to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. And that's why central to an elder's role is teaching and the defense of sound doctrine. Not that every elder is called to teach in the formal sense. As we saw, that primarily is, is given to those who are called to be pastors, to be ministers. But nevertheless, every elder is to be apt to teach. That is to handle this trustworthy word as it is taught in the scriptures. It's a bold call that requires men who take it seriously. Now, I'm encouraged this morning because in our newly elected ruling elder, I believe we have elected a man who takes it seriously and who will care for this church with that conviction that this word is life. You'll notice it says here along these same lines that he is to um, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That word sound could also be translated healthy. It promotes health. The 
opposite of that would be unhealthy doctrine, which is why the second part shows the significance that he is to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Well, because unsound doctrine kills the soul. It abuses the sheep. It demeans God's glory. And so this is not a license for a man to be a theological snob and go around demeaning people for their poor theology. But no, he is to kindly, gently, patiently, long-sufferingly be watchful, care for the sheep, promote and teach and encourage healthy, sound doctrine, but to rebuke those who contradict it, which calls for a weighty part of that responsibility. No, it doesn't say rebuke unsound teaching, but rather rebuke those who contradict it. If you think back to the family, the Bible does not in any way promote pluralism or the acceptance of false ideologies. For many years, I don't know so much anymore, now we're on the other side where the, the common thing is to say, well, don't worry about religion. You know, the, the, the kind thing in the world's eyes for your children is to keep them from religion. But for a long time, the so-called virtuous thing was to present them with all the possibilities. So take them to the vacation Bible school uh, take them to the Catholic Church, uh, give them a, a book on Zen Buddhism, let them decide for themselves. That was the culturally prominent thing to do. But the Bible teaches no such position. Why? Because false teaching destroys, and it must not be tolerated. That's why Jesus said there is one way to the Father, and it is through Christ. And so this is not, again, an opportunity for a man to exert his theological uh, learning, but instead it is a commandment for him to care for the sheep, to ensure that what is taught, that what they are taking in, is for the good of their souls. Now if you think about, again, with parents, that means as parents. We don't present our kids with possibilities of anything they could possibly do. No, we guide them to what is right and good by the Holy Scriptures. And you know this doesn't always make us popular as parents. Oftentimes it does not. Well, neither will it as elders always. But it's not about popularity. It's about love for Christ. It's about what is good for the sheep, the conviction of truth, and the genuine care for those who are under our care. So as a man is called then to his wife, the man is called to his children, so an elder is called to a certain flock to teach, to guide, and defend it. And that means the greatest concern then is not out there, but rather in our midst. Pastors must tend the flock. We want God's men. We want to hold fast to Christ. We want men who will lead us to do the same by their Profession, by their teaching, by their example in life. Going before us, coming alongside us. So then we settle for nothing less than all of Christ for us, for our family, for this church, for every soul. That's what we desire. And we do so in accordance with God's command, following the pattern that He has laid before us as we see communicated in these scriptures. 
Father, we thank you for what you have done among us for bringing and raising up another man to share in the rule of Christ's church. We pray, Lord, that you would give this church unity in this change that goes forward. We pray that you would give the session unity in this wonderful, wonderful addition. We pray that you would continue to give wisdom and that you would always and ever make us aware of our dependence and our absolute need of Christ. Lord, guide us to live each day by the gospel, to share one another's burdens, to be honest with one another, but to pursue you and the holiness that you have called us to out of gratitude for the grace by which you have saved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.